listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10. And you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking. And they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, show your support to Baronfig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today in the show, we have Connor Brown. Connor is a JD candidate at Stanford Law School and previously visiting scholar at the Cato Institute, specializing in Bitcoin and monetary policy. He has published a variety of research articles on the subject covering the economics and national security implication of Bitcoin. Enjoy my conversation with Connor Brown. Connor, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you here. So first question I like to talk with guests about is, Going back to 2008, global financial crisis, what you were doing at the time, what was going through your mind. At the time, it was a pretty unprecedented event. Obviously, they used to talk about it as being a one in a hundred year storm type of thing. And it's kind of ironic that I started the podcast with that question many months ago, and now we're kind of living through this period that we are now. So in the future, someone's going to ask on a future podcast what you were doing in 2020. But before we move to present day, take us back to 2008, and that will help us frame the conversation. Yeah, so I'm a little bit younger than most of your guests. So for me, I was in seventh grade at the time. And it was it was actually really funny because right when the market was really bottoming 
and and we were going through that that intense volatility in 2008, I was taking a like finance class, which you know wasn't super sophisticated, but basically the the teacher it was like one of our electives, and the teacher you know had a little stock market like trading competition, and there were other schools that were competing, and you would try to you know get the best returns over like a six month period. Um, and you know, and that I remember that during that time, like every single one of us just lost our entire accounts or, or just a lot of money. And, you know, we were just, I don't know, we, we didn't really understand the, the seriousness of what was going on until, you know, I could tell that over time throughout the class, my teacher got more and more kind of upset or not upset, but just kind of like depressed as she came to class. And then one day she was just like, guys, today I lost basically most of my retirement and I probably won't be able to retire for, for much longer than I anticipated. And she was about to retire in like the next two or three years. And, um, wow. so that was really what, what sticks out in my mind. And I didn't really, you know, process it or, or think much of it except, you know, more than anyone else who's kind of a millennial, which was, you know, at the time we heard that things were going wrong, that the problem was with the banks and that the banks were doing some sort of unscrupulous behavior and you know we just needed to regulate them more and i didn't really think about it much more until you know just in the past couple years where i've been really digging into the financial world and alternative monetary systems where i i kind of revisited that um with fresh eyes and it's it's been it's been really crazy to kind of go back and forth between what i used to think and what i i now understand more from a economic perspective yeah, and I first found you on you were on Marty Bent's podcast and you started writing some uh, medium articles and some other kind of publications and blogs. And the the first one I remember reading that you wrote was Bitcoin has no intrinsic value and that's great. And we're going to get into that a little bit later, but take us through that transition from 7th grade to to kind of present day and some of the research you've been involved in and going down that rabbit hole of learning about Austrian economics. So I went to college after high school and studied philosophy at Wake Forest University. And I, I really enjoyed philosophy, but it wasn't super practical. So I went to law school to get a law degree. So I'm now at Stanford Law School. And, um, you know, I'm kind of involved in the tech world here being at Stanford. And a friend of mine was telling me that I should, you know, try to find a specialty and he was like, I don't know, just just look into Bitcoin. There's something there, blockchain, technology, all that. And so I kind of came in the finance and economic side through the back door through Bitcoin, where I found this thing and I couldn't really understand it or make sense of it without some sort of economic understanding, um, because, you know, it, it seems very different from from the currency we have, which is government controlled and, um, you know, moved around through you know, bureaucrats, we have instead this monetary good that is completely controlled by code. And so I, I think at first glance, that seemed really dangerous to me. Like there's no regulations on it or anything like that. And as I dug deeper into it, I just kept feeling like there was a lot more there. And so I just kind of started, you know, trying to understand what are the ideological underpinnings of Bitcoin? Like what are the motivations behind it? Who are the people that think that this is um, a good alternative? And what are the theories behind that? And so that's kind of what introduced me to Austrian economics. And in Austrian economics, I found something that I really related to because of my philosophy background, because, you know, Austrian uh, economics and investing 
really takes a strong logical approach given its praxeological, you know, backbone, which is like you need some sort of a priori logic to justify your economic arguments. And that really spoke to me because, you know, you can do a lot more and have a lot more, you know, versatility when you're making arguments with actual logical axioms rather than, you know, here's the statistical analysis and we're looking at this curve and we think that everything's going to continue on this curve. Um, Because, you know, I've been familiar with Nassim Taleb um, and his kind of problems with statistical modeling and, and those sort of some knowledge problems. And I was really surprised that there was this whole other field of economics I'd never heard about that, you know, kind of brought things together in a non-statistical way and actually had some sort of strong logical foundations. And so from there, I really started to take a, a deeper look at this, you know, theory of finance and economics and really reevaluate our entire financial system that, you know, once you really take the Austrian view on things, that markets are very important for efficiently allocating resources given scarcity and information constraints, that any sort of central planning is always going to be subpar to market determinations. And then looking at our Federal Reserve central banking system and central banks across the world, that just didn't mesh with what I thought was praxeologically true. And so from there, I just kind of started writing and thinking about Bitcoin and I, you know, it's just been blowing my mind ever since. Yeah. And you mentioned being able to come to Bitcoin with that understanding of economics first. And I feel like people come into Bitcoin or kind of the digital asset space as a whole from a lot of different areas. So you have people who are computer programmers. Maybe they work on distributed databases, things like Hadoop and other types of load balancing type computer databases and their, their whole subcategory of that piece. And then you have people who come into the space from uh, trying to create something like a video game token or something like yeah. that. And then you have, you know, you have kind of all these different areas that are converging. You mentioned the economics piece. Do you think, do you think that's something that people should be, look at first, maybe before looking at the database side and then the, the video game or token kind of piece first in order to understand the space? Yeah, I mean, I think that really is crucial because that's really what value a distributed self-referential database brings. I mean, any other sort of distributed database is going to have some sort of Oracle problem or, you know, problems where you're taking data from the real world and putting it on this database. And, you know, unless it's a self-referential data set, which a monetary ledger is that, you're going to have some really serious problems. And I think that um, that's that's kind of the interesting nature of Bitcoin is I've met so many people from many different backgrounds who understand a slice of Bitcoin, but they don't understand really the full pie because it is so right. cross-disciplinary. And, you know, even our academic way of thinking and our academic models are based on, all right, you are a computer science guy. You are a finance guy. You are an economics guy. You're a business guy. You're a law guy. And, you know, that way of thinking about the world of what is my one specialty and how can I understand this one, this, this, you know, new technology through my one specialty, I I think really limits a lot of people. And I, I think that Bitcoin really speaks to people who are cross disciplinary or just naturally curious and, aren't afraid to delve into other topics that they've never really even considered. 
Um, I think it's extremely rare to have someone who sees Bitcoin for the first time and knows a good deal about all the different subjects that it touches. Right. And I think touching on that point briefly is this whole generation and people coming into this space trying to solve different problems around the edges. So that's a could be creating a distributed Facebook type network or we had we saw Augur, which was doing a decentralized kind of uh, not betting platform, prediction platform. Mm -hmm. So now there's this feeling that a lot of these projects, while they're interesting and, you know, as these large tech companies consolidate power, whether it's Twitter, Google, Facebook, you know, they're controlling our information. They're censoring, some people would argue censoring the platform in some ways, some more than others, let's say. Twitter may be on the lighter end, Facebook on the more, more very extreme side. But there's a sense that these technologies are very early and it's already been, I would say, proven that a lot of these technologies to be able to fully decentralize them, it's just not possible. It may not be for many, many years. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, the reality is that the reason every corporation we have is centralized is because centralization brings efficiency. And I think that it's really going to be trying to find any sort of social network that can exist on a decentralized platform. And, and, and you know, another thing is that centralization on a social media platform does bring things like moderation, um, which I think a lot of people would actually want and see that as a net good because there's a lot of nasty things on the Internet you don't want to see um, on the social media platform you're using. And so I, I think right. the, the dream of a completely decentralized, completely free social media platform uh, is is probably, you know, uh, a little bit too pie in the sky. But I think that people get excited about that because that's what uh, they they use every day. That's what they can kind of have an easier time imagining. And I think that just goes back yeah. to the problems of Bitcoin is so radically different that people kind of move on from Bitcoin, seeing it as like an outdated piece of technology. And, you know, what can this do to more immediate examples that, that I use in my everyday life. So I, I think that's kind of the, the the difference there. And I don't think that there's really any sort of, uh, you know, massive value creation in a completely decentralized social media or something like that. But I do think there is massive value creation in a decentralized monetary system. That makes a lot of sense. So that brings the conversation right back to where we were talking about gold and some of the articles that you've written. What's your take on, well, let's first talk a little bit about your article, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value and that's great. Let's talk a little bit about that and comparing it to gold and how it kind of fits into this next regime of, of where we're moving as a society with all this central bank intervention, as you mentioned, central planning, that's just really coming to a head, not just the Fed, but central banks around the world. Right, totally. So uh, my article, uh, Bitcoin Has No Intrinsic Value, and That's Great, was written basically because I was frustrated with having the same circular arguments uh, with people on the Internet or in person. And, and my background was in debate. So I actually you know, thought, well, how can I take this argument and just flip it on its head? So I was like, well, maybe not having intrinsic value is a good thing. And I started thinking about it. And, um, you know, I, I thought there's actually some really compelling reasons here why having intrinsic value and typically intrinsic value means use in, in other applications. So, for example, 
uh, someone like Peter Schiff would say gold has intrinsic value because it can be used in computer chips or it can be used in dental fillings or, you know, whatever commodity application it has. And I thought, you know, for a monetary supply, if we're just looking at it from first principles, the reason we have a monetary good is so we can effectively communicate uh, and store value. And that is essentially this like web of signaling between market participants where they exchange money in return for commodities and other you know capital goods. And so, you know, it, it didn't seem immediately apparent to me why you would need some sort of commodity value to be used that your money is used for. And so, you know, actually returning back to the Austrians and, and looking at what Mises said about uh, monetary production and which money we're using, he basically complained that gold has these other other um, elements that it's used for, these other production uh, qualities that it's used for. And that that essentially creates a distorting effect on the money supply, because you want your money supply to be a constant of savings that can communicate prices. And if suddenly we have this commodity use that starts pulling away the monetary good for non-monetary purposes, it can create a, a serious disruption or distortion in prices that throws everything else in the economy out of whack. And, you know, even if it's not very serious, that distortion is still unwanted. And, you know, a cleaner, more pure system of price discovery is always what's preferred. So, you know, looking at Bitcoin from the standpoint, Bitcoin really is just this decentralized database of ownership. And it is only used for Bitcoin. It's for only used for monetary purposes, really. Those slots in the database aren't super useful for other um, for other actions, they have no commodity value in the real world. And so it really creates this perfect signaling mechanism for prices. And if, if we look at it, I mean, this is extremely valuable to have really for the first time in, in quite some time, a monetary good that is purely a monetary good. Because right now we have fiat currency, which is not a great store of value. So humans naturally look to store their, their value, their time and energy in other assets. And so we can see like massive run-ups in housing prices. And I think that the reason we've seen a massive push for, you know, owning your own home and uh, these real estate bubbles is because the average person has no store of value that they feel comfortable using just for its monetary purposes. So we use other non-monetary goods because of their monetary aspects, their monetary properties. And, you know, we have the ability to free up a lot of resources you know, I was kind of looking into research in this article and, you know, a huge number, like a one third of all the apartments in Manhattan are just empty year round because the owners are just essentially storing their value in it. And so it, right. it made me wonder how many useful commodities and assets are we using just for their monetary properties and how much you know, energy and property can we free up just by having a nice monetary black hole that is a pure product to you know signal prices back and forth. And I think that that was really surprising to me thinking about the possibilities. And so, you know, I, I wrote that article as kind of a pushback. And whenever someone says Bitcoin doesn't have intrinsic value, I think that's a fantastic argument for Bitcoin. That's so great. You bring up the point that people make about gold being used for dental purposes and um, semiconductors and different things. I know gold is, is in iPhones. I read an article about this guy basically trying to salvage and collect old iPhones and old <laughs> cell phones and things just to, to 
be able to get the gold out of them. And it was like millions and millions of dollars they were able to actually cash in. But, you know, when people bring up that argument, the market cap of gold for the kind of intrinsic use case of all dental and cell phones and things, it's very, very small. So compared to the the overall market cap. So when people bring up that argument, it almost seems like it's kind of counterintuitive in that way. Yeah, definitely. I think really, I mean, we're seeing the vast majority of gold's market cap is for its monetary properties. And, you know, even like the jewelry market is only there because of gold's monetary properties. And so I think that, you know, uh, I, I think that gold bugs, when they make that argument, are more just desperate to try to create some sort of distinction because they know they can't argue gold is better from a monetary standpoint. So they have to say, well, what are the differences? I'm just going to say those differences make, you know, gold better than Bitcoin. So, you know, I, I wonder if they even make that argument in good faith. But, you know, nevertheless, they say it all the time. <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Just in the past, I don't know, I, I want to say maybe even months, not even years, I've been seeing this trend of People who are in the gold business and who have gold companies and, as you mentioned, kind of gold bugs and Bitcoiners moving closer together and, and trying to see a common thread. Do you do you notice that as well? And the, kind of the second point here is, as you mentioned, being that kind of that store of value, it's been talked about how it's not really even hedge funds or, or reg, traditional kind of banks buying in it's really almost central banks and, and governments that 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 own a lot of gold that could maybe start buying bitcoin so what are your views on on those two pieces yeah i, I think that it, it is interesting that some gold investors are kind of coming around to bitcoin and i think you know obviously it makes sense bitcoin's story is extremely similar to gold it's just that its monetary properties are better and you know whatever gold has you can just you know take that and think okay bitcoin has this you know, it's got a shorter track record, but basically in every other category, it blows gold out of the water. Yeah, it has everything but the track record. Exactly. Which plus a lot of other. Yeah. Things. So in that way, Bitcoin, you know, just gains in value every day as it just proves that track record out. I think that um, it's it's interesting that, you know, gold people are coming to Bitcoin. And I think that, um, I don't know, it's it's been seen. I, I've gotten into some Twitter feuds about it because, you know, my argument to them is like, it's it's not really a both narrative. Like I think that the nature, and it's not because I don't like gold mm-hmm. or I don't like these people or I find them outdated, but I, I think it's just mm-hmm. the nature of monetary economics that there is going to be a competition, and you know, calling for a gold Bitcoin alliance is like calling for a a, a silver gold alliance a hundred years ago, and it's just it's not the silver people are bad. It's just that they're wrong <laughs> from a monetary standpoint. They are holding the inferior monetary good, and they will be demonetized eventually. And, you know, silver lost its monetary premium when we had, you know, better monetary technology and gold basically maintained its store value properties and silver became good for silverware and other, you know, utility purposes. And I think that gold is going to see a large, I mean, I mean, this is 20 years maybe. I mean, this is not anything immediate. Um, and I, I'm actually pretty tactically bullish on gold in the short term, given all the craziness that's happening. But I think longer term, it's, it's all out monetary warfare and, People are going to hold what's best for storing value. And I think the the outlook is definitely not good for gold. Exactly. And the second piece there is talking about, you know, let's talk a little bit about the push for an ETF, which hasn't happened. Let's talk a little bit about why that some people argue is is maybe not a great thing because it it brings these centralized 
kind of almost like Bitcoin banks and these centralized institutions that hold a large amount. And we've already seen kind of some of the fork wars and the uh, user activated soft fork and the uh, no 2x, which was you know successful and people kind of came together and, and realized that we want to preserve this kind of decentralized platform. But so the ETF, the centralized nature, and then it's been talked about, maybe it's not hedge funds and even banks and things like that. Maybe it's central banks that, that need to hold it eventually. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the, the ETF is interesting. Um you know, Bitcoin just kind of has this strange aura around it that just makes regulators uneasy. And I think that uh, whatever it might mm-hmm. be, uh, it's it's going to be tough to get an ETF approved, um, even though uh, uh, it's it's not really any different from any of the other things that ETFs are approved for. But um, I think ultimately it's probably a, a net good for Bitcoin uh, just in the short term, just because I, I think the the longer Bitcoin goes, and it, you know, sort of seeds that initial distribution of coins um, in a way that is non-custodial or not all aggregated into one giant ETF. I think that's that's good for Bitcoin's value proposition. And I feel like an ETF is inevitable, um, but it'll probably come uh, later than than we expect. Um, I, the other half of your question was about central banks and, you know, sort of when they start pulling the trigger. And I think that I. I you know, Bitcoin is this really strange thing that rejects a lot of economic orthodoxy. And mm-hmm. for that reason, I can see central banks having a really hard time coming to grips with what Bitcoin represents. Because, you know, to buy Bitcoin is kind of like the poison pill um, that mm-hmm. they might be they, they will feel compelled to take because, you know, they want to, you know, own mm-hmm. what the other central banks uh, don't yet and they want to sort of be ahead of the curve, but at the same time, it's basically admitting that a, you know, completely decentralized and, you know, strict monetary policy of zero monetary growth is what's best for an economy. And so that's, it's kind of like a catch 22 for them. I think that, um, you know, we'll, we'll see who jumps in the ring first. I think it, it would be strategic for all of them to, uh, for, you know, the Federal Reserve or, or whichever bank you're looking at to be the first person who buys because they're going to see massive upside. But I think it's going to be tough for them to even wrap their minds around doing that because it would be admitting that all of their actions are, um, you know, detrimental to society. And, you know, central bankers love to see themselves as having the courage to act and other similar ridiculous statements. <laughs> Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There, it's been talked about kind of the game theory here, and obviously they can central banks if with the U.S. dollar and things like that. If they, you know, they can print their own currency. Not all central banks, uh, not all nation states, let's say, but for the Fed, uh, they they can print money and and buy this stuff. They don't even have to make the announcement per se. So you know, but as you mentioned, it's it's definitely counterintuitive to the message and the in the whole system that's in place but i would argue also that the fact that they hold gold uh, to begin with is is really kind of a an admission of of that and you have that, that that whole exchange that was pretty famous of ron paul questioning uh, ben bernanke of of questioning him why central banks own gold and he basically said that well it's just tradition and it's kind of a, the asset of last resort and he was just kind of making these excuses and things but at the end of the day they central banks hold a lot of gold yeah. 
So there, there, there's a question. That I think that should that should be a question in people's minds, um, and of, of why they do yeah. that. You know, if it, if it's so, if 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 dollars are really, you know, have all the value, then why do they hold gold? Yeah, that was a, a pretty hilarious exchange, <laughs> and you know, it it goes to you know how much of this is like psychological signaling, and how much of this like do they actually believe when when they're saying it? Because you know, it's Greenspan true. he he wrote one of the best arguments for gold I've ever read, <laughs> and and basically explained how credit. Um, works under a gold standard and how basically a gold standard is self-regulating in the way that the, you know, credit supply can expand. And then in times of, you know, too much credit, it, it contracts sort of naturally and that it sort of represents this very ideal system for expansion and uh, reduction of credit. And, you know, that was a long time ago. And that, I mean, I think that was in the sixties when he wrote that and then he became fed chair and basically recanted on all that. Um, and then, you know, just a few years ago, he had an interview where he was talking about the benefits of gold and why he still liked it a lot. So I, I wonder, you know, how much of this they genuinely believe and how much of this is, is posturing. And then there's other banks like yeah. Canada sold the entirety of its gold reserves. So I feel like they are 100% Did they? Wow. Kool-Aid. Um, but I, I wonder, um, how many central bankers are all in or how many sort of have, uh, a secret, uh, hunch on, on what's actually taking place with monetary economics. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. As you mentioned, you know, for them to kind of buy in or publicly state they were buying Bitcoin or had a reserve of Bitcoin, I, I, like you said, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but I could see them, you know, doing it secretly. Now that we know that, you know, there's not going to be Bitcoin cash, Bitcoin gold, all these different assets. We, we're kind of at the point, I think, to where people kind of realize that the, this chain with the most hash power, the most, you can go through the list, the, the slowest approach to, to developing and kind of all those things that makes it what it is, network effects and, and everything else. But I think at that point, you know, that's something to look at. Now, the other thing to bring up is just talking about the market cap. So let's talk a little bit about what success looks like. And there's so many different forms. And it just seems like every year that goes by, it's kind of interesting to how it's been taking so long. And that speaks to a lot of things, but it speaks to the fact that there's so many disciplines involved in this, as as we discussed a little bit, distributed systems, monetary economics, and all these things that decentralized systems that, that come together. Now, that's one of the reasons. Now, you can look back and say 10 plus years, we, we should really be to the point where people have explained this in a very easy to understand way, even, even for someone who does, who knows nothing mm-hmm. about it. But one thing that has been brought up is success could look something like a gold market cap. So, and, and like you said, obviously your, your view here is Bitcoin and gold will, will have a competition and, and Bitcoin will probably win out. I believe you, you mentioned earlier, but, it's been pointed out, you look at India, you look at other countries around the world, a lot of them store their wealth in gold because of the, the fiat currency not being the dollar or the euro and things like that, where they're, where they're losing vastly 
the purchasing power in a, in a way that's really, really fast. You can look at extreme examples like Venezuela, but even ones that are less extreme where they're, you know, they're still losing a pretty good amount of it. So they store their assets in gold. So sometimes people like to talk about a hyperbole kind of scenario where, okay, Bitcoin needs to overtake the dollar. It needs to achieve some market cap. But what if it just achieves, you know, an eight to 10 trillion market cap? Um, that gold has and has had for a while. Um, and I know it, it does fluctuate throughout the years, but eight to 10 trillion of Bitcoin right now at 150 billion, a little bit more than that. You know, that would put the price 400, 450 K per one Bitcoin. Um, what's your view on that? Yeah. I mean, success. Uh, I think Bitcoin is already successful in the sense that it has achieved monetary properties that no other good has ever had. Uh, in human existence. And so in, in that sense, like we have successfully created uh, a new form of money that is superior to all previous types. Um, in terms of market cap and what does success mean? I think, um, yeah, the, the gold market cap would certainly be awesome. Um, 450K of Bitcoin, like those numbers are already kind of making your head spin. But I feel like, you know, yeah. essentially like once we start, be, like once Bitcoin is really considered a serious contender, for a global reserve asset, I feel like once it gets past, you know, the trillion dollar market cap and people really start taking it seriously and picking it apart and seeing the potential it holds, it sort of is, is kind of this inevitable black hole. I don't see Bitcoin reaching gold's market cap and not proceeding to, you know, swallow large parts. Uh, I mean, basically, uh, fiat currencies whole, uh, large parts of the real estate market, um, parts of even, even the stock market in the sense that people use the stock market as a way to avoid the inflation tax. Um, and these, these risk on assets are basically, um, what is causing people to try to preserve their wealth in whatever way they can. And so they, they go for riskier assets in order to, you know, you know, store their wealth in some way. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to even imagine, um, what Bitcoin's potential could be, but I feel like once that ball kind of starts rolling down the hill, um, the inertia will be too strong and the network effects will be too, um, you know, exponential that it, there's really anything where people just park their money in, uh, to, to park their, or to store value in, uh, any form of monetary good is basically going to go to Bitcoin. Right. And as we transition into the, looking towards the next generation, so, as you mentioned, you're in the start of this uh, conversation that you're kind of in that millennial generation, and so am I. I'm towards the uh, kind of the, the older millennial side, and <laughs> people like to talk a lot about millennials and the preferences, and we've it's been beaten to death. There's so many articles, and people have debunked a lot of the, the statements and some of the trends that people thought were going to happen. And some of them were, were actually kind of coming true. But when you look to the next generation of Gen Z and, and future generations, just the digital nature and the you know, growing up right from birth with an iPhone in your hand or an iPad, um, and, and, and really just you can't imagine any other any other way of doing things, uh, you know, completely digital native. Let's talk a little bit about how those people are going to view the world and and come into a world to where central banks have just flooded the system and 
and you know, not and of course not to say the hyperbole of of the of some of the currencies are just going to completely collapse, but they are going to be coming into a world with <laughs> zero and negative rates, you know, central ba- ba- bank balance sheets off the charts, fiat currencies <laughs> at least kind of trending down. Yeah. In that sense, a race to the bottom, and and they're coming into this world right right when Bitcoin is kind of coming of age. It's it's really an incredible situation, and I think that you know for the millennials, the defining moment was largely 2008. Um, it set the tone for a lot of you know it obviously set the tone for the past decade, but I think it set kind of like the yeah um the the tone for the ideology of the the generic millennial, right? Um, at least um exactly. for for me in college and for all of my friends. Still, I feel like there is a general sense of corporations are, you know, uh, a net bad for society um, and that, you know, a lot of problems and social problems that we have are a result of the, you know, corporate banking system and for for people who are being too greedy or too too risky. And I think that in a similar ways, coronavirus and the pandemic and the response to it by governments is going to be the defining moment in the Gen Z mindset. And I think it will, I think it'll probably be really the complete opposite um, because, um, you know, what's happening with the virus, honestly, the more I learn about the severity of the virus, the more I'm confused. I I really, you know, I'm having a hard time determining what's true and what's false. But I I think that overwhelmingly uh, we are going to see economic devastation that we, we can't really comprehend yet. Um, and the, you know, idea that we can just turn our economy off for several months and that there won't be consequences, um, is going to be something that we look back on, especially Gen Z looks back on as their defining moment as just a moment of disbelief. And, you know, they're going to see their parents' yeah. savings disappear. They're going to see people they know lose their jobs. They're going to see their parents lose their jobs. Um, and, you know, at, at the same time, um, we'll, we'll see what happens with the market. I personally think the market's going to go lower, but the market's been going straight up while <laughs> unemployment's been coming in at millions per week. Um, I, I think it's been just like really, um, crazy for them to, to sort of try to process this. And that's something that will stick with them for a long time. I mean, we're seeing like the, the money printer go burr meme is, is like one of the most <laughs> viral memes right now. Um, and, oh, yeah. and that's, that's really important to kind of keep a, a check on the pulse. And so I think that, you know, 2008 was a crisis of confidence in the traditional finance system. This is probably the, a similar crisis of confidence in the uh, the actual central planning aspects of our, our economic system. Um, so I, I think that it'll be really interesting when they're like, oh, and there's this Bitcoin thing that can't be manipulated. It can't be taken from you. Um, it can't be printed. And you can just, you know, basically treat this as your your safe haven to weather financial storms. So I, I think that it's, you know, obviously all in favor of Bitcoin and a more savings-based and equity-based economy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, today, as we're recording, May 13th, Wednesday, uh, Jay Powell made some comments. I did not hear them, so I can't speak too much to them, but I was uh, reading a couple things on Twitter about just some of the somber nature of the comments and the market uh Sold off pretty bad today. Um, and I think even, you know, some of these cheerleaders out there are now kind of realizing that, you know, there, there's a lot more to this and this is going to probably last 
longer than a lot of people thought. Now, transitioning over to continuing that conversation of the kind of the digitally native next generations, there's been talk about when you look at Libra, the Facebook project, and I know a lot of other companies joined up, even Spotify I saw was involved. So you have companies that are, that are kind of on the fringes. When you look at Spotify being, being a music app and a a music company, you can look at uh, music video games and all types of commerce that's going to take, take place over digital rails. So I think to frame this conversation, first you have to look at, you know, people going back to just kind of the gold, talking about gold. I've heard Jim Rickards on a few podcasts talk about the SDR and what that could mean going forward, kind of a basket of currencies, you know, IMF and World Bank and, and those type of conversations. And I think when you transfer transition over to something like Libra, you know, a private company um, co- trying to cooperate, let's say, with Federal Reserve Banks, um, you know, the conversation is always about, okay, we, we already have kind of digital money, right? So we have, you know, digital U.S. dollars and we don't need a blockchain. We have uh, SQL databases and those type of things to keep track of all that. Um, we had Andreas Antonopoulos on the show and he's had some amazing videos talking about kind of the blockchain hype and you just kind of replace the word database there, do a control F and replace database and that will kind of have you covered. So I think, you know, t- to frame the conversation there with Libra, I think there's, there's no question that we're going to have some type of a kind of a, a, a further push to digitization, right? And, and, and getting rid of cash, physical cash and those type of things. Let's talk a little about your thoughts there. Yeah. I know that's a, that's a big wide range. Yeah, of sure. I, I have a lot of thoughts there. First, just addressing the idea of a basket currency. I think we probably only had one shot at transitioning from a dollar based system to a basket of currency system. And that was probably after 2008 because there was a realization that, that something went wrong. China was saying that it was largely caused by the dollar. Um, and I think a lot of countries realized that because the dollar is so important to, you know, all aspects of international trade that, you know, if there's a problem in U.S. real estate, then the entire world can kind of feel the consequences of that. Um, but we didn't have those conversations and, and that didn't take place. And, you know, the SDR has been around for a while, but it hasn't really seen any uh, adoption, really. And I feel like. Right. What we're seeing now with coronavirus, and I, I think coronavirus is is not really the cause, but it's more just like what lit the fuse on, you know, decades of mismanagement and, you know, irresponsible financing, is that essentially we're seeing countries start to sort of fight for the scraps. And I, every country realizes they're in really desperate financial situations. You know, I don't even know if there's going to be a eurozone much longer and what what's going to happen with a euro. But, you know, I feel like a, a lot of countries are going to be increasingly hostile towards each other. We're seeing a push towards more nationalism and, you know, more, you know, made at home manufacturing. And so the idea of there being some sort of Bretton Woods 2.0 where everyone gets together and China sits across from the U.S. and they're both happy with their currencies being in the basket. I mean, it just seems extremely pie in the sky to me. I, I don't think that's likely to happen. And I think Libra, if anyone was going to do it, it it probably would have been Facebook. And I think that, you know, what we've seen happen mm-hmm. with Libra is, is really a defining moment for the corporate coin because no one is better 
set up to do something like this. I mean, they have billions of users across the world. Um, they have the international reach. They're probably the most powerful tech company. And, you know, they just got slapped down right there in front of U.S. regulators and were terrified of, of actually going through with what they initially had the idea of. And so now they've transitioned it essentially to a, um, a full dollar, like it, it just U.S. dollar coin. And I think that that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of, it, it shows the catch 22 of any corporation that's trying to do something like this, which is the U S and the dollar system has created such a powerful network of financial surveillance and monitoring that um, anyone who is trying to do some sort of, you know, borderless currency like Libra is, is going to find themselves um, really just kneecapped by those regulations and they won't be able to, you know, perform what they, they want to do. And, you know, when because they're going to be made by some centralized entity, they're going to be uh, liable for it in, you know, U.S. courts. And so I think that um, Libra has kind of shown the importance that if you really want to move to a new neutral monetary standard, it's going to have to be something that is fully decentralized. And that's really Bitcoin's the only option there. Uh, it, it's really the only one with the credibility that could survive. And, you know, there's no one to bring into Congress and testify, you know, before the, the Senate Finance Committee um, about what they're going to do. Bitcoin just is. It has a monetary policy that can't be altered and it's going to just continue to to grow whatever, you know, regardless of what regulators want or what monetary policy some bureaucrats think is ideal for the next two years. Yeah, and you mentioned just how the monetary system is has all been predefined. We just had the halving pass, and I saw Marty Bent tweeted out, you know, it Bitcoin just works basically, and you know the halving pass, and that's it. It just works. It's all it's been working. It, it will continue to work, and as he says, and. And I know you've talked about this before and you've went on his show. We're going to link that in the show notes is, you know, it just needs to continue to pump out blocks and produce blocks. And, um, and that's, that's all it needs to do. Um, now transitioning to, to that piece, as you talked about kind of the dollarization, we've had this just tons of stable coins as people call them have, have come out. So, Kind of just a similar to almost like a digital dollar in your mm-hmm. bank account. Um, and, and people have come up with different ways to kind of back them. Some have these kind of wild schemes to where they try to create value where they're, where they're, as you mentioned, the, the whole point of, of Bitcoin is it has no quote intrinsic value. So it's, it's kind of funny to see some of these stable coins come out, but let's just stick to the U, the U.S. dollar kind of stable coins, as they would call them. Um, let's, what's your view on those, and are there any benefit to having them in this kind of Bitcoin? Yeah, economy? I think that um, they're an extremely important kind of stepping stone uh, for a couple of reasons. First, it, it just gets people accustomed to using digital currencies, and I think that, um, you know, for a lot of people in developing nations, you know, uh, Bitcoin's a little bit too far for them, but the idea of, oh, here's a digital dollar and people can't really take it from you. Um, that's huge for people that live with capital controls and, you know, are constantly forced to use, uh, a currency that's being inflated away. And so I think, um, that's, that's big. I think it will accelerate dollarization, but we're already seeing in large parts of South America, 
um, the ability, and, and some of these are really novel. They're not just, you know, holding dollars in a bank account and then issuing the coins. That's kind of like the most simple. That's like your tether model. But there's a lot of new, um, interesting, they're basically Bitcoin derivatives, um, that, um, when you, in, when you put money into this, this, uh, system, um, there, it's like an app or something. When you deposit Bitcoin into it, then it'll give you like synthetic dollar, um, exposure essentially by shorting Bitcoin, like one, eight, one X leverage type stuff. Um, so you can kind of create some very interesting stable coins that work as if they are a dollar. Um, and so, you know, we'll see what happens, uh, with, with that. I think we're going to see, I think it's just the beginning. We're going to see a lot more creative ways that people can get dollars in, um, in emerging economies. And that will, you know, I don't see it as like all fiat currencies will fail at once. I think there's immense pressure that's keeping the dollar very strong. Um, and that will, I, I think the dollar is basically going to, despite, you know, all the money that's being printed in the injections that we're seeing, we'll probably see some inflation here. Um, in, especially in like food prices and stuff because of supply shortages and, and lots of extra money on the streets from, you know, all these fiscal and, and stimulus packages. But abroad, I feel like the dollar is, is going to dominate in, in a lot of these, you know, uh, countries that we're already looking at some pretty, um, you know, risky financial decisions. And, you know, now the access to the dollar is much easier and it's basically an escape valve. And so I think we'll see the smaller, weaker, you know, fiat currencies start to fall uh, to the point where maybe there's just like four or five and then Bitcoin is like the sixth or something like that. It, that's kind of how I can see it. It's like a domino effect eventually leading to Bitcoin first the dollar and like a final showdown type situation. But I, I think that, you know, as we find ways to digitalize the dollar, I think that's going to be important for accelerating uh, these change, the, the, you know, the change in, in monetary regimes across the world. Yeah. And as mentioned, we just saw the halving happen, which, of course, cuts the supply of, of new Bitcoin entering into the the total supply through the mining mechanism. Um, we won't go into too much detail on the nitty gritty on that, but let's hear from you, you, your views on kind of reflecting on that and, and what you're expecting going forward into the next months and years. Yeah, I think the having is an incredible thing. We just cut the inflation rate in half, essentially. And um, I think that, you know, it's it's really a, a beautiful thing. <laughs> I was there like celebrating it, watching the block come through. And it is really cool just to see the protocol just works like there's there's nothing anyone can do. There's all these miners who would love to get more Bitcoin and the protocol is just not going to let them. And there's not really anything they can do about it. And, um, you know, I, I think what it represents also is, you know, I think there's a lot of great analysis that Safedine has done and Safedine and Moose, um, and, uh, plan B on, you know, the stock to flow model. And, you know, I don't have a statistics background, but I think stock to flow, um, which is just the idea that, you know, as Bitcoin's inflation rate gets cut in half, the outstanding stock relative to the flow of new, you know, uh, Bitcoins that are being produced increases. So our stock to flow ratio goes up. And um, as the halving has come around, that, that stock to flow has increased significantly. And so Plan B has an interesting, you know, model that says that the stock to flow ratio is the most important determinant of price. I don't think that's true necessarily that it's directly stock to flow, but I do think there is something there, which is, you know, there's 
like I would say a relative constant in demand of Bitcoin based on the amount of people who are currently, you know, interested in it. They understand it. They want to get their hands on more of it. And, you know, those people, it, it doesn't fluctuate dramatically, um, but their their demand is pretty constant. And, you know, once this halving kicks off, the inflation rates gets cut in half. So the new supply hit in the market every day gets cut in half. That that sort of kicks the price up. Um, and, you know, that amount of demand that has stayed constant, supplies getting cut in half. So price rises somewhat. And then, you know, that is sort of like the catalyst for these new, you know, viral feedback loops. And that's that's really uh, really this like ingenious design of Bitcoin. But I think it, it makes a lot of sense because when I talk to people about, you know, what convinced you to take Bitcoin seriously is, you know, well, I, I noticed the price was going up and that was I was kind of in disbelief. So I figured there's something more here. I need to learn more about it. And so these sorts of supply shocks can then create um, price movement that is sufficient to really get people to reconsider it. And then that is sort of its own self-fulfilling feedback loop where more people are like, you know, maybe I should give this thing more thought. And then they decide, you know, this actually is a superior form of money. So maybe it makes sense for me to hold on to some. And then that creates its own sort of self-fulfilling feedback loop. And so, you know, I, I'm super excited about the having. I don't know if we're going to see the effects, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks, but I think in the next, you know, six months to a year, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Um, as the supply just gets tighter and tighter. And now we're basically on the same page as gold. Yeah, and I've seen some of your Twitter polls in recent days, kind of doing some research on people coming into the space based on price. And I've read and talked to a lot of people about how they first came because of that. And maybe they see a new story or heard something from a friend and especially in 2017, but they stayed for kind of the sound money and that sent them down the rabbit hole of Austrian economics, which was kind of interesting to hear those. Yeah. I think, you know, typically when we think of uh, demand creates price and that's, that's kind of how we think of things. And this is a very strange scenario where price is generating demand (laughs) because it, it makes people take it seriously in a way they, they hadn't before. And, you know, just personally, I think it, it makes sense to me because my first real time I, I spent time digging into Bitcoin was when it was, you know, on its run up from 10 to 20,000 is when I was like, what the hell is going on here? And that was when I first got right. contact to it. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I didn't, <laughs> I didn't decide to buy any. I kind of got bored with it after a couple of days and decided this is too weird. Um, and, you know, revisited it. Uh, a couple months later, but um, I do think it, it meshes with what I've kind of experienced from my friends where, you know, I got really excited about Bitcoin. It was trading at around $5,000, um, like, you know, a, two, a year and a half ago or so. And I was trying to just, you know, tell people like, hey, this is a really big deal. I don't think it's getting nearly enough attention um, by any sort of sophisticated investors and, you know, there's a lot of upward potential here. And it was just a, I was met with a lot of apathy of like, uh, OK, dude, you know, it, maybe you're just trying to sell your bags. I don't know what you're doing, but this is weird. I don't want a part of yeah. it. And then sure enough, it goes up to 10,000 a few months later. And they're like, can you tell me more about Bitcoin? <laughs> and it, it, right. I, was, I was just kind of shocked because their willingness to learn was relative to price movements going up. And, you know, when people say like Bitcoin 
isn't determined by stock to flow. It's determined by, you know, how convincing our narratives is or, or how much great educational material is. I think that educational material only really sticks when people see actual price movements that they can't understand under their current, you know, cognitive frame. <laughs> and so I, I think there's that, that's kind of the beauty of the stock to flow analysis is kind of like the, the strange way that price can dictate demand and create these supply shocks that kind of kick off and light this fuse to the next bull run. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I think the last thing to touch on is this argument of holding is using and this, the next generation of, of payment rails with lightning network and things like that. We, we didn't really talk about that. So just very briefly, um, you know, where do you come down on that? And is it just a matter of time where this is, it's going to take years to play out, but eventually maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think hodling is the most important use of Bitcoin because only by, you know, thousands, millions of people storing their time and energy in Bitcoin, um, is it going to have any sort of, you know, strong potential, um, in order to, you know, I think in order to have a value proposition where people want to hold their, their money in it, it, other people need to hold their money in it. Um, so I think that's one thing, like it, it needs to work in that way. And hodlers are basically bootstrapping the value of the network itself and kind of like keeping that supply low. And I think at the same time, you know, only by hodling do you have the ability to, you know, in, in a way, hodling is a much more revolutionary act than protesting or voting or something like that, because you can create um, a change that is much larger than what any sort of, uh, you know, vote would recognize that, you know, we could really bootstrap a new monetary system that has no um, central planning, has no bureaucracy determining the money supply and how they can best, you know, manipulate it for themselves. But instead, you know, it, it's completely defined by 21 million coins that can't be altered. Um, and I think that lightning represents just the first of many protocols we're going to see that is using Bitcoin in sort of um, and building on top of it, you know, because Bitcoin has this sort of extremely secure, um, immovable foundation. And, you know, that's part of the design of it. That's part of the uh, philosophy behind the developers, which is, you know, we just want something hyper secure and very, very simple because money is something that you do not want complexity involved. You want it to be extremely safe um, because that that way people can believe in holding their time and energy in it for long, for, you know, for, for years and, and feel comfortable with that. And so I think that um, Lightning is a, a protocol that anchors into that really strong foundation and says, well, because there's such certainty underneath it um, and because we, we feel comfortable with what's happening at the base layer, that it's not going to, you know, move around on us, that we're going to build and spend all our time building networks on top of this that can create you know, more private, much cheaper, much faster ways of sending and, and storing Bitcoin. And so I think in that sense, Lightning represents the next step towards seeing something very similar to what we see in our current financial system, where, you know, the very base layer is used for sending very high dollar transactions, you know, so sending on the base chain of Bitcoin is going to be the equivalent to like sending gold between central banks. And then the next level up is like, you know, sending right. uh, interbank transfers and things like that. And so that would be something like Lightning. And then there will probably be something even built on top of Lightning 
um, that's, you know, for direct re- retail payments, you know, between individuals or something like that. And so I think that layered approach gives you that really strong foundation and then you can build all types of cool stuff on top of it. Very, very similar to the uh, TCP IP protocol for the internet and, you know, other sorts of uh, digital platforms where you really need a secure base layer and then the creativity really comes out uh, on top of it and on the sides of it. That makes a lot of sense. Well, Connor, it was really great having you. Why don't you tell people where to find some more of your work? We're going to link uh, your your blog here and then some of your articles and your Twitter handle. But um, why don't you give a quick yeah, shout out? Thank you so much for having me on. I've you know really like your podcast and uh, it means a lot to be able to to be on it. Uh, you can find me at Twitter um, at underscore Connor Brown underscore and that's Connor spelled with an E R. And uh, you can find me on Medium at Connor underscore, and um, that's with an ER again. So, yeah, uh, I've, I've written a couple different articles. I've written, I think it's like five or six articles now, and I also have an article pinned at the top of my, my Twitter feed. But I, I'd, I'd love to uh, get some readers and get some feedback on, on what I've written, and hopefully uh, people like what I've, I've written about. But um, thank you again for having me on. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at jellydonutpod. Or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.